Well, just last month, um, it's quite emotional, if I'm honest. Uh, just last month, I turned 40. Uh, <laughs> it's for, uh, painful, it's painful. Uh, and I got this, uh, the Ladybird book uh, of the midlife crisis, okay? The Ladybird book of the midlife crisis. And this is how it begins, this is how it begins. Um, When we are young, we all dream of doing something wonderful and exciting with our lives. What will we be? Uh, A cosmonaut, an underwater detective, uh, a Tommy gun fighter, a groin surgeon. Anything is possible. And then one day, it isn't. Okay. And the first page reads like this. Jason's midlife crisis started one Sunday morning in B&Q when he spotted a tub of boat varnish. I will never own a boat, he thought to himself. Jason has never wanted to own a boat, but now not owning a boat uh, is all that he can think about. Okay. Uh, Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. FOMO is what it's called. FOMO. Fear of missing out. Uh, it's, it's becoming all the more prevalent in our society. Uh, social media is just making it worse. Uh, the thought that uh, someone else is having an, an experience that you're missing out on right now, or you've missed out on an experience in the past, um, and that that's particularly painful. It's really the idea that other people are having a better life than you. And I think we're all susceptible to that. Uh, especially Christians, actually. We are especially susceptible to that. There's a particular Christian flavor uh, of FOMO. Uh, you may look as a Christian uh, at the lives of, of your non-Christian friends. You may see the experience they're having, the time they have on their, on their hands, the extra money that they've got that they're not giving away. Uh, and you may be tempted to think, hold on a minute, Uh, Am I missing out on some of the enjoyments that they're having, that life has to offer, that I'm not getting? Or uh, perhaps we look at the lives of other Christians, lives of other Christians, and we think, well, they they seem to have something I don't. They seem to have some vivid spiritual experience. They seem to have some experience and encounter with God that I don't have. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I'm missing out. Well, it turns out that a fear of missing out uh, is, is not a new thing. Uh, it is something that was, uh, that was there right there in the first century. And that's really, in one sense, what this book uh, is, is all about, this letter of Colossians. Uh, this letter is written to uh, a group of Christians in the town of Colossae, uh, modern-day Turkey, um, that Paul did not plant, um, planted by a, f- a friend of his, Epaphras. We'll hear about him in a moment. Um, and this church was established. They believed the gospel. They made a wonderful good start. Uh, but very soon after the church got going, uh, these false teachers started to come in. Uh, and they started to say things like, well, look, it's great. Look, it's great you've got Jesus. That's brilliant. Well done, you. Uh, you've made a wonderful start, but actually, if you really want to be mature, and if you really want to live the abundant, blessed life, 
then listen to what we have to offer because we've, we can offer some spiritual add-ons, spiritual extra things, practices and rituals. And if you do those and you listen to us and follow us, well, then you'll have it all. Then you'll have it all. Paul's given you an, an Epaphras. They've given you the ABCs. We can give you the whole alphabet. Um, and it's really uh, that in, into that context then, Christians that are unsettled, beginning to think, are we, are we missing out? Have we misunderstood? Have we got it wrong? Is there something else and extra we need to be doing uh, and believing? Uh, well, it's to them then, these unsettled Christians, that Paul writes to reassure them. Uh, and you can see some of his words of reassurance in, for example, chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says... I tell you this so that no one may be deceived. No one may deceive you, sorry, by fine-sounding arguments. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depend on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Uh, these false teachers were saying, great, you've made a good start, but look at the extra, the shortcut to maturity, the blessing that we can give you, if you listen to us. Paul was saying, no, 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 hold on a minute, hold on a minute, you've got everything. You've got everything. Paul, of course, will go on to say, will go on to say the Christian life is not to be static. There's always growth that you're to have. Um, but it's going deeper into what you've already got instead of adding on something new. Uh, and so Paul writes then to reassure these Christians that they, if they have Jesus, if they have Jesus, they have everything. They have everything they need for full Christian life, blessing and abundance. They've got it all. They've got it all. Uh, and so Paul can say things like uh, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you uh, have been brought to fullness. You have everything. You've got everything you need uh, if you've got Christ. But then that raises the immediate question, how do I know that I have Christ, that I have a real relationship with the Lord Jesus? How can I be sure that I've got that, that I'm not mistaken, uh, that I've not been wrong on the uptake? And really that's then where Paul begins this little letter. He begins just to reassure them how he is confident, how he is absolutely sure that they are the real McCoy, that they are really genuine believers uh, that they've believed the real gospel and they have a real relationship with the Lord Jesus. And because they do, they got, they've got everything. They've got everything. Uh, and so Paul then points to two features, uh, two reasons why he is absolutely confident they're the real McCoy. Uh, and this was a, he was writing to reassure them and the, the tone of this morning, if you are listening in, is that you're to be doing a little mental check. Have I got these things? And if you do, you're meant to be wonderfully reassured this morning as well. You too are the real McCoy. So two things, two reasons why Paul is absolutely confident that these Colossian Christians should find relief and joy that they are the real thing. Number one, 
because you've got the marks of true conversion. And number two, you've believed the message of the true gospel. That's the two things Paul's saying, very simply. And we'll work through them over these next couple of minutes. So number one, first reason why Paul is absolutely sure that they've got a real genuine relationship with Jesus, uh, that they are the real McCoy, is because you've got the marks of true conversion. So a few years ago, uh, when I worked for another church, um, Ruth and I were invited to, to dinner with a friend of mine uh, and his wife, and he told me before we came that another couple would be joining them and joining us uh, that, that Ruth and I didn't know. So as we pulled up to his street, there wasn't a parking spot straight out his hu- outside his house, so we drove down the street a little bit, found a space, and while I was maneuvering smoothly into that parking spot... <laughs> Uh, I saw someone else, another couple, get out of a, the car and begin to walk up the street. And we wondered out loud, I wonder, I wonder is that the couple that we're going to be having lunch with? And it turns out that they were thinking exactly the same thing, right? And so apparently, my friend tells me, when they got to the door, they said, oh, don't close the door yet. Uh, there's another couple coming up the street that we think are, are joining us because... They look like Christians. (laughs) I must admit, that's a a difficult thing for me to hear, if I'm honest. Did we we dress like Christians? Did I park like a Christian? Um, I suspect it was maybe in England, the bottle of Schlur that I had, you know, kind of Christian wine, you know, uh, that we were bringing as part of the gift. Maybe it's better that I don't know. Maybe it's better that I don't know. But it does raise the question, what does a Christian look like? What does a Christian look like? And it's got nothing to do with your dress sense. And it's got nothing to do with your politics. And it's got nothing to do with your sense of humor. Three things that mark out a genuine Christian convert. Uh, and it's there in verses uh, 3 and 4 and 5. We thank, God, the, uh, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because, three things, we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for all the saints and the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Three things then that are distinctive marks of every Christian convert. If you've got these three things, you are an authentic believer. You have a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus. Three things. Number one, faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. It may seem an obvious thing to say, and it's language that we kind of bandy about uh, in Christian circles, but it's worth spending a moment what, on what we mean by faith in Jesus. Now, when I say faith in Jesus, I don't mean we like Jesus, right? Although I hope we do. Uh, We like Jesus. It doesn't mean we get help from Jesus. It doesn't mean when I need a listening ear, I turn to Jesus. To to, To talk about faith in Jesus really means at its heart that we have bet everything. To have faith means that we Uh, that you're betting everything on Jesus for your life, for your hope, for your future. Everything. I've got no backup plan. It all hangs on him. 
Uh, and the, the clue that the, that's what Paul means is really in the title uh, that he gives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christ, if you're, if you're a visitor here, if you're a guest and not really familiar with some of the language of the New Testament, uh, the word Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's not the name you kind of looked up in the phone book if you kind of wanted to find Jesus uh, and his phone number or address. Christ is a title. It's just the, the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And it means anointed one or anointed king. And when we are having faith in Jesus Christ, we are believing, wholeheartedly believing, that he is the divine king that God promised all the way through the scriptures. Uh, We are believing that all God's promises, all God's purposes uh, that he he made uh, and uttered in the Old Testament all find their fulfillment and completion and climax in him. Uh, We are believing that the the death that he died on the cross was enough to cover all my sin and shame. He paid it all. We, We are believing that my prayer gets through to the throne room of heaven because Jesus delivers it for me. And we are believing that we have a place in God's perfect future because Jesus has guaranteed it for me. It's to believe all of that, to hang all your hope, all your confidence on the Lord Jesus. And if you've done that, then you have had faith in Jesus Christ. The first essential mark then of a genuine, true convert is faith in Jesus Christ. The second is love for all the saints, love for all the saints. Now, a saint in the New Testament is not an elite special class of Christian who is particularly holy, uh, who gets uh, his, his or her picture in a stained glass window, gets a building, church building named after them. It's not someone who has been pronounced a saint after their death by the Pope. That is not what the New Testament ever means by a saint. A saint in the New Testament simply means someone who is set apart by the Lord for him And for his kingdom, chosen, special to God. Um, And so, um, according to the New Testament then, all believers are saints. The moment you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, that he was who he claims he was and is, uh, that he died on the cross for you, that your hope can be secure because of him, the moment you did that, According to the New Testament, you too became a saint. You became a saint. Um, Maybe that's not how you think of yourself, saintly or saint whoever, but that's who you are, according to the New Testament. And so the the challenging word in this little second phrase that Paul describes uh, for those uh, that, for what marks out a Christian, is not the word saint, it's the little word all, actually. Love for all the saints. That's the challenge. Um, Paul, as he heard a report about them and how they were living out their Christian lives from Epaphras, he became aware that they were loving and serving and accepting one another 
Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, men and women, slave and free, they all loved each one another, accepted one another equally. It's a remarkable picture of what the gospel can do to change us and to change our attitudes uh, to one another. I came across uh, this story, which I find quite moving, uh, a picture of these two men uh, on the screen. The first is um, a guy called Taser Abu Sa'ad, uh, and he grew up in the Gaza Strip. Uh, that's the baldy man, the shorter guy. He grew up in the Gaza Strip, was educated in Saudi Arabia, went back to Palestine and was trained by the PLO and became a sniper, uh, trained to shoot Jewish soldiers. That was his job, right? And apparently he was very good at it. Uh, The guy who he is standing next to with his arm around is a guy called uh, Moran Rosenblid. And you can guess from the name that he's not uh, an Arab. Uh, He is a Jew, who was a Jewish Israeli soldier who was embittered and uh, disillusioned uh, when a suicide bomber killed seven of his close friends in uh, in his unit. Both those men from those radically different backgrounds both emigrated to the United States of America. In the United States, they both came in contact with Christians who shared with them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And in very different ways, both of them became convinced that Jesus was God's divine son. Both of them were convinced that he died on the cross to save them uh, and became converts to Christianity and clear believers. In 2001, they went to a conference in the United States together, well, separately, but at the same conference, Uh, And they got to hear one another's stories from their different backgrounds and how they came to faith. They both prayed together and came to the most unlikely friendship. That is what the gospel can do. Because the gospel humbles us, shows us our need, but it shows us God's love and unconditional kindness. And when you start to get that, it begins to change how you relate to other people. That is a challenge for us. That is a challenge for us, isn't it? Do we love like that in this community? We see even in this little verse that this is, this is not a natural love, is it? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8, the last verse of our little section. And, uh, and who also, that's Epaphras, told us of your love in the Spirit in the spirit. This is a spirit-empowered love, love that doesn't come naturally. What do we love like? We love those who are like us. That's who we love. We spend company with people who share our values, who share our worldview. We love people that we're like. It's going to take something supernatural for us to love people not like us, for us to love people that are not easy to love, To love people and to accept people and to forgive people who've perhaps offended us in some way. But if we are able to love, not perfectly, we'll never do it perfectly. 
but even we're begin, able to begin to love people who are radically different from us, people who at one level are difficult to love, that is a sure sign that the Spirit of God is really at work in our lives, in our lives. And I think after a year that we've had, where we've had some relational difficulty in our church family, this is something that we need to continue to pray for, be willing to repent over our failure to love, failure to forgive, failure to accept, um, and something and failure to support, uh, and something then that we need to pray would be more true, more and more, uh, in our lives. Two things then that mark out a Christian. Uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, love for all the saints, and then thirdly, hope in the promise of heaven. Hope in the promise of heaven. Paul says in verse 5, faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Uh, Shortly before his untimely death, Steve Jobs uh, gave an interview uh, and uh, the interviewer knew of his, his diagnosis and began to ask him some quite profound questions. And one of the questions that he was asked is, have you got any hope beyond the grave? And Steve Jobs said this, I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. And then there was a long silence. And he said, on the other hand, Perhaps it is like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone, and that's it. Now, how can you know that Steve Jobs is wrong on that point? How can you be sure? How could you be sure at all? Um, Well, I had uh, a conversation with my barber um, a couple of weeks ago. And look, I have no clue how we got onto this subject, uh, but we got onto the subject of death, which is a slightly uncomfortable subject when someone's holding scissors that close to you, to be honest. But, um, but uh, she was cutting my hair, um, and we began to talk about the subject of death. Uh, and she said, "But sure, we can't be sure. We can't be sure what's beyond, because no one's ever come back to tell us." Now, I don't call myself a gifted evangelist at all, to be honest. Um, But even I spotted an opportunity there that I probably should take. And thankfully, I was able to take it. And I was able to say, well, look, that's kind of the very point of Christianity, is that there there was a man who lived and really, really died. And the whole point of Easter is that he came back to the life again so that we can be absolutely sure that there's life beyond the grave. For a Christian, hope is not wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. Um, it is, as I say there, it is the certain expectation for the future based on history, real history, on what Jesus said and what Jesus did. He came back to life again. And his promise, his promise that anyone who puts their trust in him will have a welcome in God's eternal kingdom. 
And you see that's radical, radically different from wishful thinking, how we normally use the word hope in English. You know, I hope Chelsea will win the league. Uh, I hope uh, Ireland will win the Six Nations. I hope it'll be a nice day tomorrow. Um, I hope I'll pass my exams, even though I haven't done any study for it. You know, you get the idea. It, it carries with it. Every time we use the word hope in English, it carries with it a big element of doubt. But when the New Testament uses the word hope, there is no doubt. There's no doubt. It has just not happened yet. It's the certain expectation of what will definitely happen. There is hope beyond the grave. And when you start looking for it, this letter is crammed full of hope. Um, Paul can describe uh, uh, the gospel message, the essence of the gospel message in some ways. In chapter 1, verse 27, he can say, what was the good news about Jesus about? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Just flip over to chapter 3, verse 4. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, when he comes back again, then you also will appear with him in glory. You will, it will happen. It will happen. We have a wonderful hope. Uh, and when you have that hope, it changes. It changes your priorities. It changes what you value now. Uh, because that day will certainly come. Uh, three things then, three features of every genuine convert to Christianity. Everyone who has a, a real relationship with the Lord Jesus has faith in Jesus Christ, uh, has love for all the saints, uh, and has hope uh, of a certain future. Paul then continues, because not only is he sure that these are real believers because they have these features, distinctive features of uh, every true convert, but number two, not only have they the mark, they got the marks of true conversion, but they've also believed the message of the true gospel. Believed the message of the true gospel. No doubt the religious leaders were saying, Epaphras, but sure, he's not that well educated. Maybe he got it wrong. Maybe he left some stuff out. Um, come to us, listen to us, and we'll give you true knowledge, fuller knowledge uh, to lead you, give you a shortcut to maturity and greater blessing. And Paul says, no, no, not at all. You've got, you've got the real message, the genuine message of the gospel. You can be secure and confident because there are some distinctive marks of the true message of Jesus. Yes, it gets corrupted. There's plenty who have corrupted it. But the true message of the gospel is a bit like a, one of those banknotes. You know a true banknote when you hold it up to the light? It's got a watermark it's got a little foil that runs through. And actually, if you put any of them under UV light, there's all sorts of patterns and words that appear. Okay, I didn't know that to this week, but apparently that's true. Uh, all marks of the real McCoy, the real thing. Uh, in the same way, Paul is saying, look, here are the marks of the true gospel. And this is the message you heard, is it not? What are the, what are the marks then of the true gospel? First, verse 6, it's a message of grace. It's a message of grace. If you were to sum it up, that's what it's all about. In verse 6, we read, All of the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood. What did you understand? 
What was the message they understood? God's grace in all its truth. The true message of the gospel is about God's undeserved kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Uh, One writer uh, and pastor, John MacArthur, says this. There are only two religions in the world, uh, sorry, the only two religions the world has ever known or will ever know. The religion of divine accomplishment, which is biblical Christianity, and the religion of human achievement, which includes all other kinds of religion. Divine accomplishment or human achievement, that's it. Uh, All other religions and philosophies of the world are ultimately spelt D-O. Here are things and practices and regulations and rules and rituals that you need to do. You need to do if you're to earn favor with some higher power. But Christianity is radically different to every other religion and philosophy in the world. Christianity is spelt D-O-N-E. Done. It is done for you. For you. With the coming of the Lord Jesus with his perfect life that he lived on your behalf and the sacrificial death that he offered to pay the penalty for all your sin and shame. It has all been done. And so it is not an accident in any way that the last words that Jesus cried out with his final breath on the cross were, it is finished. Done. Done for us on our behalf, which we receive as a free gift when we put our trust in him. We receive forgiveness, adoption into God's family, uh, and receive the certain hope of heaven. What What is the gospel about? What's the distinctive mark of it? It's a message of grace, a message of grace, God's undeserved kindness. And then lastly, it's also a message of power, a message of power. Verse six again. Uh, it is bearing fruit. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Again, of course, there is always more to learn about the gospel. We should be growing in our faith, growing in our confidence in Jesus, of course. Um, the gospel does have the power to change us. It is a, f- a message of Christ's finished work but it will have the power in the present to change you. It is focused on the future. There is a wonderful future that you have that Jesus has purchased for you, but it's also a message of power to change in the present. Power to change in the present. How does the gospel do that? Well, it does it in a whole variety of ways. But when we understand that we have received undeserved forgiveness as we've hinted at already, that gives us a new perspective and a new power to let go of grudges and bitterness and resentment in the lives of, towards other people who don't deserve it. Once we realize that God is in absolute control of history, that he has orchestrated all things so that his son would be sent, that his church would be built, 
Once we get that and understand that, that suddenly begins to set us free from anxiety and anger and deceit because we're desperately trying to be in control ourselves. Once we realize, of course, that we have absolute hope for the future, it means we can begin to handle the disappointments and the struggles of the present. To live life with greater peace and greater poise because we've got real hope. Do you see the gospel begins to change? It's not that you need something new, but the more you understand it and take it into your heart, the more it begins to reshape you, reorder your affections, to reset your perspective, uh, to give you new values and priorities. It's a powerful message that can change us. I think that's a wonderful thing. I, 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 don't, I think very, very few, I would say, no one here, would be so bold as to say no one here is completely satisfied with the person they are now. Unless you're incredibly self-deluded. We all long to be better, to be different, to be more mature, more godly, more loving, more kind. How will that happen? How will that happen? It happens as we take to heart the good news of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus. And it's a message that's bearing fruit and growing all over the world. All over the world. And Paul is writing to this little, little tiny group of Christians probably in Colossae. And he's just reassuring them, you are not a cult in a corner. You're not a cult in a corner. This message that you believed, everyone is, people are believing this from every nation all over the world. And that is true today. You, we are not a cult in a corner. Despite what the culture says around us today, that we're not enlightened enough. Think of how the gospel is advancing in this world. In the 1980s, it was estimated that there were about 10 million Christians. It's a lot. Uh, but only 10 million in all of China, with its vast population. Today, even a conservative estimate suggests that there's over 100 million Christians in China. 30 years nearly 40 years. That's still remarkable growth by any marketing model. In 1980, it was inconceivable by most mission organizations that they would see any significant Christian growth in Iran, which in the 1980s was the most Islamic regime in the world. Today, it is the fastest growing, it's the country where the church is growing the fastest in all the Middle East. It's bearing fruit and growing all over the world. People are becoming Christians. And as they understand and take to heart the gospel, they're becoming mature Christians all over the world. We are not a cult in a corner. And so Paul, it's, it's wonderful to know uh, you're being prayed for. That's always great. To learn someone's praying for you, that's lovely. And giving thanks for you, that's great. But why does Paul do that here? Why does he report his prayer? He reports his prayer in order to reassure them. Reassure them. You are the real McCoy. Have you believed in Jesus? Do you love people that you never expected to love? 
and feel affection and commitment to who are radically different from you? Is that happening for you? Do you have hope for the future? If you've got those three things, you are a Christian. You're a Christian. You really are. What message have you believed? Have you believed a message of undeserved grace in Jesus Christ for you? Have you seen your own life change? Do you see the lives of other people changed? If that's the message that you've accepted, you are a Christian. You have a real relationship with Jesus. And because you have a real relationship with Jesus, you've got everything you need to live and flourish in this life. Let me pray for us.